0: And Natalie's uh, authored and co-authored a number of books and is working on another one as we speak. But her latest one that's kind of out is this one called Invisible Divides. The word invisible is kind of there, but it's hard to see. Is that how clever, that is? And uh, but it's a fantastic book. I've read it cover to cover. Uh, and really, it helps understand that, you know, um, not everyone in life is like us. <laughs> and uh, people are, you know, who, who are different think differently. And, and lots of churches, really, in England, including, would be probably similar to ours, I think. Fairly white, fairly middle class, fairly educated. Uh, that, that, that kind of sums up lots of us. Uh, but the much of the nation is not like that. And uh, I think this book really helps us try and understand people, in a sense, who are not like us, they have different life experiences, see the world differently, and I think gives a window uh, to help us as churches because we want to be able to welcome people uh, from wherever they come from, whether that's an African nation or whether that's a different social demographic within our own nation. And I think books like this really help. So I recommend, there's some at the back, they cost £8, take one, give the money to Kings, we'll pass it on to Natalie. So that's the book and the book plug. Just talking about Natalie, she's the uh, chief executive officer or whatever, leader of Jubilee Plus, which was the social action charity That really came out of New Frontiers' work, uh, trying to serve the poor and uh, equip churches uh, to reach out uh, into their communities and serve. And actually, I've known Natalie for, I don't know, about a dozen years when Newground started. Uh, She was the Newground comms Uh, person for a couple of days a week, as well as working for our own church, King's Church Hastings, as well as helping the Labour candidate to try and get um, elected there, as well as heading up Food Bank. And over the last number of years, Natalie is multi-talented and has had all these different top pulls on her time and her life. But it feels to me like a few years ago, God spoke fairly clearly. I want you to focus on Jubilee+. Plus. She's now leading that charity. And I actually get the privilege a few times a year of meeting with Natalie and just trying to be a sounding board uh, as she's really taking Jubilee Plus uh, into what I believe all that God has for that charity. So she's a good personal friend. She's a fantastic speaker, uh, let me tell you. So please give a warm Oxford welcome to Natalie Williams.
1: It's always a little bit worrying when someone says something that nice about you, isn't it? Because it kind of raises expectations and also tells everyone some of my past political preferences. Don't let that put you off in any way. Um, I'm very quiet about that these days. And if I'd known Dale was going to say anything, I certainly wouldn't have worn red. So, um, yeah, please don't, don't let that put you off in any way. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me here this morning. Um, I don't really know how to follow the object lessons, amazing, um, or any of that. I I think it's amazing just to hear the testimonies of what God is doing. And um, so forgive me if I take us into a slightly more sombre note than some of those testimonies, which were quite joyful and exciting to hear. But I want to talk about um, the cost of living crisis this morning. And more importantly, how does God respond when we are in a time of crisis? What does God do? Now, it might be that you're sat here this morning and you yourself are in a time of crisis, and it might be that no one knows that at all except God. But I just want to let you know this morning that God cares if that is you. And if that's not you and you are here and you are pretty comfortable, then actually God wants you to know too that he cares about the people around you who are struggling at the moment, who are finding the cost of living crisis hard to cope with. I spoke to someone at my local citizen's advice in January and she said to me that basically they've had more people asking for help for their gas and electricity bills in the last year than they would had in the last decade combined. And that would be true across the nation, whether you live somewhere that's quite deprived like Hastings where I live, or whether you live somewhere that's quite nice, um, like I hear it is here, um, then actually it's the same situation that... Uh, The proportion of people who are struggling is increasing and increasing in our communities. And of course, most of us have noticed the cost of living crisis, haven't we? Like if you've done a food shop lately, have you winced at the price of milk or eggs or bread, even just the normal everyday food. It's not even luxurious food, is it? It's just the stuff that we buy every day. And the prices have been going up and up. If you have got a car and you have put petrol in your car in the last year or so, again, you've probably winced a little bit as you've done that. Um, when your energy bill comes in, again, it's increased massively and possibly gonna increase again soon, isn't it? So we've all experienced the cost of living crisis. It has affected us all. Um, But though all of us are affected, we're not all affected in the same way. It's interesting, during the pandemic, there was that kind of phrase, uh, the great leveller. Do you remember that? People, politicians, journalists and so on was talking about the pandemic has been the great leveller. And similar sort of language is used in some ways about the cost of living crisis, that the reason people say things like that is because we're all in it, we're all affected by it. But some of us are affected by these things um, as if we're in a cruise liner. So imagine you're in a storm, and that you're in a cruise liner. Probably you look out the window and you think there's a storm out there, but you can't really feel it that much. You know it looks a bit grim, but you're not really affected by it. And maybe it means you can't go on top deck to the swimming pool, so you're inconvenienced a little bit, but really you're not in any danger. Whereas for other people, the storm of the cost of living crisis is faced by them a bit more like clinging to a piece of driftwood in an ocean, wondering whether they're even gonna survive, wondering how they're gonna make it, wondering how they're gonna get through, just clinging on for dear life. And so for some people at the moment, the cost of living crisis is an inconvenience, and for others, it is an utter catastrophe, especially because it comes on the back of the pandemic So people were already struggling. People who were in poverty before the pandemic were pushed deeper into it, and then as it looked like the pandemic was gonna end and might finally be behind us, actually we find the cost of living crisis comes along and makes life harder for so many. So for many people calling organisations like Citizens Advice or coming to our food banks or our debt centres or the other things that we run, people have fallen behind with things like their rent or their mortgage payments. People have fallen behind with their bills and if you fall behind on your gas and electricity and you're on a meter, then actually when you're on a prepayment meter, then when you fall behind, actually it's not just that you're getting into debt, it's that you get cut off. If you go more than five or ten pounds, depending who you're with, with your prepayment meter over, then, then the lights go off your gas and electricity actually gets switched off. And what happens then is that you can't do all the things that we, we just take them for granted, don't we? Like boiling a kettle. How many times when you boil a kettle do you thank God for electricity? Um, If I'm honest with you, not very often in my life because it's just something I'm so familiar with. Um, If you've got no gas and electricity, you can't really cook dinner, you can't charge a phone, you can't watch TV, you can't use a washing machine if you've got food in the fridge or the freezer, that food is going to start going off. And, or you're going to have to eat it pretty quickly to make sure that it doesn't. And for some people, they've got medication in the fridge as well that will start to be unusable if their electricity or their gas is off for too long. So this morning, what I want to look at is, how does God feel about this? Because this is the reality for many people around us. In Like I say, whatever community we're in, This is increasing this type of poverty and for many actually even among the middle classes and those who look quite comfortably off actually can be affected and no one knows because there can be a sense of shame that goes along with it. So I remember even during the pandemic a woman who uh, came to our food bank and clearly just deeply embarrassed to be there. She said to me, I've given to this food bank time and time again, but I never imagined I would be here. And the reason she'd ended up at the food bank is because she had lived according to her means. So as her income went up, so did her lifestyle. She bought a bigger house, she bought a better car, she went on nicer holidays. And there's nothing wrong with any of that in in that sense. But when you don't know there's a crisis around the corner, you can live like that. But it means that when the crisis hits, suddenly you've got no disposable income. You could live in a massive house and still have no money to put food on the table. So we mustn't think this is just certain people we can identify and we can look at and go, you know, because you're asking for money on the streets, you're in poverty, but because you've got a nice house, you're not. Actually, poverty can affect people from all walks of life at all different times. And God cares about it, whoever it's affecting, and for whatever reason it's affecting them, Whether it's because we've lived according to our means and we've let our lifestyle go up and up and up and then suddenly a crisis hits and we don't know. Or whether it's because we're a victim of circumstances and just bad things keep happening to us. Or whether we make bad choices. Actually, God is a merciful God. We've been singing that, haven't we, this morning. He is a merciful, kind, compassionate God, even when we've got ourselves in a mess. So God cares, but not only does he care, he provides. And what I want to look at this morning is three of the ways that God provides for his people in a crisis. One of the names of God in the Old Testament, one of the first names given to God in the Bible is Jehovah Jireh. There's a woman in my church who says it's Jehovah Jireh, which um, I think you have to probably be a certain age to get that joke, don't you? Um, I'm thinking I don't actually even know what is, so. Yeah, I wish. Yeah, thanks, Dale. But actually, Jehovah Jireh means God will provide. God will provide. And Jesus told his followers, you don't need to worry about the essentials of life. You don't need to worry about food or clothing or shelter because your father knows what you need. Your father in heaven knows what you need. Jesus said those words to comfort his followers. So in the Bible, I think there are three ways we see that God provides the essentials that we need for life. And the first way, and this one I won't linger on too long, the first way, I think it's a really obvious way, is that God provides for us through work, through, through having jobs. We were created to work, uh, depending how you feel about your job, you may not agree with this, but work was created before sin came into the world. Work is not the result of the fall. Work is something we were created to do. Uh, God always designed us and intended that we should work. And work is part of a beautiful design that God has for us to give us purpose and dignity um, as we do that. Which is all well and good, but what if you can't work? There are many reasons that people can't work. Injury, illness, childcare, and, you know, I could probably name dozens of reasons why people can't work. So God created us to work, but he also knows there are reasons why, for some people, that's just an impossibility, either for a season or for the long term. But actually, it might be the case that you can work, you just can't find a job. I've had two seasons in my life of quite long unemployment, where I wanted to work, I just couldn't get a job, just couldn't find anything, couldn't find work at all, and being unemployed was just, it was hard. Or I was able to pick up the odd shift here and there, but it was unreliable income. And actually in the current cost of living crisis, there are some people who are working and that still isn't paying the bills. So there's a woman at my food bank recently who's actually working three jobs And still needs to come to a food bank because she can't put food on the table. So if you can't work, or you can't find a job, or you are working and it just isn't enough to pay the bills and feed your family. Then I think there are two other ways in a time of crisis that God provides for us. And the first one is that God provides through his people. He provides through his people. So in Acts 2 verse 44. It says this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. then a couple of chapters on in Acts 4, it says this, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. We can not realize how amazing this is that actually in the book of Acts, in the early church, this is the people of God, people who walked with Jesus. They've seen him die. They've seen him risen from the dead. They've seen him ascend to the Father. And then they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when they live empowered by the Holy Spirit, one of the outworkings of this is, you know, they pray in tongues. One of the outworkings of this is that they heal the sick. But another outworking of it is that there is no one in need among them because they share everything that they've got. Not a single person in need among them. This is astonishing because in any Roman or Greek city at the time, about half the population would have been in poverty. Or living on the edge of it. So if you imagine that, imagine if 50% of the people around you are living in poverty. And if you go to the neighbouring town or village or city, and 50% of the people there are living in poverty. And then you move on to the next place, and half the people there are living in poverty. And then in the church, there is not one single person living in poverty. Wouldn't it make you think, what's so special about that people? Wouldn't it make them distinctive of all the peoples around you? You wouldn't be able to find any other place or people group like the church. And that's exactly what God wants. That there should not be a single person in need among us so that when the world around us looks at us, they see something different and it points them to Jesus. It points them to God who tells his people how to live and when they live according to that, They look different to every other group of people around them. The attitude of the early church was not what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. It's what's mine is yours. Now, I find this really, really hard with really ridiculous things. So um, for a while at work at my local church, I used to um, have a phone charger in my office and I stopped having it in my office because people used to take it all the time. Basically, I I don't think there are many things that would get me as wound up as my phone turning up at work one day to find that my phone charger is not in my office because someone's borrowed it. And I would like walk around the building accusing anyone I bumped into, you know, really godly attitude in my heart here. And be like, have you got my phone charger? Have you got it? You usually take it and don't give it back. Um, You know, because I'd be like, it's not just that you borrowed it. It's that you haven't given it back. What's mine is Mine and you shouldn't borrow without asking, and you definitely should return it. And I remember walking around one evening. We used to have an evening meeting before the pandemic in my church, and I was walking around with a friend of mine. She wanted to talk to me, but I was obsessed with finding my phone charger because it's usually the worship band who nick it. So I was, I was walking around trying to find it. No, no offense. Sorry, I just realized I've offended worship leaders in the room. But um, my friend suddenly just was like, "Nah, what's wrong with you? She said to me, don't you speak about like poverty and sharing and stuff all the time? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, do you, do you think you might want to live it as well? <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what? In that moment, it she was spot on. I was doing, you know, I get to speak and write about this stuff all the time, but I hadn't applied it to this particular thing with my iPhone charger. I've also got a friend who... um Whenever we're out anywhere, if she's got chewing gum, she will always try and secretively have a chewing gum without letting any of us around her know that she's got chewing gum because she just doesn't want to share it. I mean, we are ridiculous sometimes, aren't we, with some of the things that we won't share, some of the things that we hold really tightly. The early church wasn't like that. The early church, not only if they'd had chewing gum and phone chargers would have shared that, but they shared their property, they shared their land, they sold things. If they realised we've got loads, you've got nothing, I'll sell something so you can have. Actually, they looked around them and saw people in need and thought, instead of just saying, let me pray for you, and I'm not despising that, but instead of just saying that, they said, what have I got that you can have? How can I actually answer my own prayer? my tendency whenever anyone comes and tells me they're in need is to say "Oh, I'll pray for you and I realized that I do it to get out actually off the hook of having to do anything about it and please don't mishear me I'm not saying we shouldn't pray we absolutely should pray but actually sometimes I feel God says to me do not pray you don't need to pray solve the problem just deal with it bless the person Um, in one of John's letters it says you know what good is it to say to someone bless you bless you if you don't give them the bread that they need and so often my response is I'll pray for you because it's the easy thing to do and again yeah prayer is good please keep praying for people but if you can answer your own prayer then answer the prayer too. My small group um, in Hastings once did this for me in such a glorious way Um, I became a Christian when I was 15 and from a pretty kind of messy and broken background and I didn't really know how to fit in with church life at all and I I was just a bit all over the place and a bit messy and I I backslid, I went away from God because for a long time I just felt like I'm not like these people, I don't know how to fit in, I don't know how to be like them and felt like I had to be like them, which no one was putting on me, that was just how I felt. Um, And... So I went away from God, and when I went away from God, I got into horrendous debt. In fact, when I came back to God, uh, someone, a solicitor in the church, was asked to help me out, and he basically said, I think you should declare yourself bankrupt, because I can't see any other way for you to get out of this situation. I was unemployed at the time, Um, didn't really have any hope financially, had come back to hope in Jesus, but humanly speaking, there was no hope that I could get out of the mess that I was in. And I did manage to get out of the mess that I was in by the grace of God. I got a job within two weeks of that. I didn't end up declaring myself bankrupt. I basically, God taught me how to be good with money over several years. And I gradually got out of debt. But in that period when I was unemployed, when I was in debt, I was still doing things like smoking. And I was, some people would come up and say to me on a regular basis, You need to give that up. It's a waste of money. It's bad for your health. And they were right, of course. But it didn't make me feel like I belonged in the family of God. Those sorts of things made me feel isolated and pushed out. But my small group at the time was incredible because though they knew that I spent what little money I had on things they wouldn't approve of, they clubbed together to buy me a car because I didn't have a car and they knew I needed one And they knew that it was going to take me forever to manage to get one on my own. So they clubbed together. They bought me this old banger. It was like, I think it cost 500 quid and it was a a Fiat Cinquecento and it was held together by duct tape. And I'm not exaggerating. It literally had tape holding one of the doors and the boot together um, on the car. But, you know, I loved that car because what it spoke to me of was of a sense of the love of God. The compassion of God, even though I'd got myself into a right mess. And actually, it was um, acts like that that held me in the church when there were other things that were going on that made me think church isn't for me and still hold that belief that I don't fit here. But actually, that small group clubbing together to provide a need that I had spoke volumes to me of the kindness of God for me and the compassion of God for me and made me feel like I belonged and that I wasn't being judged So I think sharing is hard. We live in such a materialistic and individualistic culture. And I guess any of you with kids will know that it doesn't take long before they've learnt the word mine. Or certainly learnt to say no when someone wants to come along and share. But you know, the people of God, we are called to be different. We are called to be different. We're called not to be selfish or greedy or territorial or precious with our stuff. We're not to hoard, Um, James writes to the church that we're not to live in luxury and self-indulgence. We are to share. We're to be a people who say, actually, what's mine is yours. And if you've got a need, then it's my responsibility. Collectively, it's our responsibility to meet that need. We're to be set apart by how we love each other. And how that looks practically in terms of sharing what we've got. And then from that space, it's supposed to overflow into the communities around us, into the world around us. But it starts in the church with there not being a single person in need among us. Now, part of that starts with if you've got a need, feeling like you can say it feeling like you can come and talk to someone in the church. And I remember a woman in my church coming up to me one morning on a Sunday and saying to me, I'm in overwhelming credit card debt and I don't know how to get out of it and I haven't felt I can tell anyone because I know that I'm the only person in the church in debt. I was like, you're not the only person in the church in debt, but also even being able to share with her my story of being in debt made a massive difference. So I just want to encourage you, if you are struggling, And especially if you're struggling secretly, please come and tell someone, because actually then the church has an opportunity to meet your needs and provide for you and bring you out of shame and actually help you with your practical need, but also the emotional need as well of being in that situation. But as well as God providing through his people, in a crisis I think that God also loves to provide supernaturally. And I just want to say before I get into kind of some of the miraculous supernatural provision of God, that I actually think it's a miracle every time God moves my heart to give to someone else. Now, you might be more naturally generous than I am. You might be more naturally a sharer than I am. But for me, I know there's times when I know it's only a sovereign move of God that has worked in my heart when I've given to something or someone, especially if it's someone who I'm not sure they'll spend it wisely. You know that feeling? I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had that thought. Sometimes you think, shall I give to that person? Oh, I'm not sure what they'll do with it. Actually, I think God often wants to work in our hearts to say, give generously. That's the bit he's called us to. What someone does with what we give is their responsibility. And that's the bit God will hold them accountable for. But what God holds me accountable for is, am I generous? Am I compassionate? Am I willing to share? And I love um, what it says about the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I should read this to you. Uh, This is Paul writing, and he says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, just think about that for a moment. The Macedonians are in a severe test of affliction, and this is some weird maths. They've got two things. They've got an abundance of joy, and they've got extreme poverty, and when you add those two things together, it overflows in a wealth of generosity. You don't have to have a lot to be able to be a blessing to those around you. It goes on to say, "...for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord." Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes someone comes up to me and says they want to give to something, and I know it's beyond their means, so I tell them not to. God might have told them to do it, and I'm like, no, 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 you need to be wise, you need to be sensible, and of course there's a place for wisdom, of course there is, but we must be careful not to quench what God is doing, because I would have quenched the Macedonians and said to them, actually, don't give beyond your means, because, you know, You you need to be sensible. But actually, so often in the Bible, we see people give beyond their means. And he says that they, um, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I read this verse um, at the start of this year. I'm sure I would have read it several times over my life, a time as a Christian. But I read it at the beginning of the year and I thought, wow, when was the last time I earnestly begged God For an opportunity to take part in the relief of other people, whether Christians or not. I think the posture is so interesting there, isn't it? And that, for me, is a supernatural work of God. If we get to the place where we earnestly beg, God, give me an opportunity to partake in the favour of the relief of the saints. And I think many of us will have stories where we've been blessed By God miraculously providing through other people, through moving other people's hearts. We might have many stories of where God has moved our own hearts to miraculously bless others. But I do think God also loves to miraculously bless directly as well. I do think he loves to do supernatural things that no one can explain. And so often when we talk about the supernatural, we talk about healing, Signs and wonders, those kind of things, and that's wonderful, and I'd love to see more healing. But I wonder if in our day, at this time in our nation, God is wanting to do something with miraculous provision again, with supernatural provision again. There are loads of examples of it in the Bible. I'm going to just race through a few of them. So in Psalm 78, it recounts kind of the tale of the Israelites in the desert with Moses Now, so they have um, escaped from slavery, being held by the Egyptians, and they've escaped, and they're now in the desert, and they've got no food or drink. There's no provision for them, and there's nowhere to get it from. And in Psalm 78, it tells us a few of the things that God did. So one of them is, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly. So literally what it's saying is God just split rocks and water came out that was drinkable that was clean, that was pure water that they could drink. It says that he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven, literally food falling from the sky to provide for their need. It says that he rained meat on them like dust. I don't think that sounds very nice, but um, they needed meat. He said so he rained meat on them like dust. They ate and were well filled. Isn't that incredible? And we can read this as if it's not Real. We can read this as if it didn't really happen, but this is his, this is history. This is stuff God actually really did for people who were hungry and who were thirsty and who were moany and complaining and not that faith-filled at all, and yet God provided miraculously all they needed. And it's not just the Israelites in the desert. I'll just tell you a few stories from the prophet Elisha. So in 2 Kings 3... Um, The kings of Israel and Judah go to war together. They're on the same side. They go to war together. And for seven days, they're in a parched land where basically the whole army is going to dehydrate and die of thirst. There's no water at all. And through Elisha, God says, I'm going to fill the dry stream bed with water. And he does. Water comes. They have all they need. In 2 Kings 4, there's a widow who is in debt, and she's going to have to sell her two sons into slavery so that all of them can survive. Um, And again, God provides. He provides an abundance of oil, enough oil, not only that she can pay off her debts and keep her sons, but also that they can live off the rest of it. In the same chapter, it's a time of famine, and there's a stew that is poisoned. So there's not much food around, obviously, in a famine, and they've got a stew, and the stew's poisoned. So not being able to eat it is catastrophic. And th- again, through the prophet Elisha, the stew is made totally fine so that they can eat it and they don't die. And also it says that bread is provided, is multiplied enough for a 100 people. And just one more in 2 Kings 6, um, the sons of the prophets are chopping down trees to build homes because they don't have homes. And this is a weird story, I think, but uh, one of them is chopping down a tree and his axe head falls into a river. You think, well, is that that big a deal? But actually, it's pretty disastrous for this guy because it says that it's borrowed and according to the law, when you've borrowed something, if you can't give it back, you are then indebted and possibly even enslaved to the person that you owe it to. So not only can this guy not continue building his home, but actually he's, this is going to cause him some serious problems. And so Elisha comes along and throws in a stick and up the axe head pops from the riverbed and comes back to the surface so the guy can carry on chopping down his tree. And again, these are real stories. They're not just kind of fairy stories, or they're not just bedtime stories for the kids. These are things God really did in history, and he's still the same God today. So whether it's food or drink or the tools that are needed for work, God provides, and he cares, and he still does that. I'm sure some of you will have heard of George Muller, who's a guy who set up orphanages in Bristol, and... There's loads of famous stories about George Muller and how he would have these orphanages but they would have to pray for provision because there'd be nothing to eat or drink. And there's stories of all the kids sitting at the breakfast table with no food and no milk and then like a milk cart breaking down outside so that suddenly they're literally sitting there praying and then a milk cart breaks down outside in that moment and then they've got milk for that morning. Likewise, there's stories like that about bread appearing from nowhere where they didn't have food. But George Muller lived his whole life expecting God to provide miraculously for him. There's story after story after story of his personal life before he ever got to opening up orphanages where this is just how he lived. And one of my favourite stories is he was used to people turning up with money. That's just what happened in George Muller's life. People would turn up and say, God told me to give you some money. Here you go. I'm sure we'd all like the George Muller anointing, wouldn't we? But one day, it was a Sunday And him and his wife and their child, they had no food to eat that day. And they prayed, but they knew that even if someone turned up with money, as would usually happen, they weren't going to be able to do anything to get food that day because the shops were shut wasn't like they are now where shops are open on a sunday on in this time no shops would be open so even though they prayed and they expected god to provide and they expected money to turn up they had kind of resigned themselves that they wouldn't be able to eat that day but they would hopefully be able to eat the next day the knock at the door comes and there's a woman there and she says god told me to bring you some money and bring you some bread and she said god was very specific he said i must bring both So they had bread for that day, and they also had money for the next day as well. You know, in my own life, I've mentioned that I've wandered away from God and that I didn't have to declare myself bankrupt. You know, it took me about seven years to repay all the debt I owed, but it should have taken 12. And there is no way that it adds up if you do the maths. I don't know how I got debt-free in seven years instead of 12. Because on paper, there's, I've tried working it out several times. It doesn't work out. God miraculously provided for me. It wasn't money at the door like George Muller. But it was some weird maths where somehow I got debt-free five years earlier than I was supposed to. And there's no, there's no way of telling you how that happened. Other times, God's provided for me, like I said, why people clubbed together and they bought me a car. I've known the miraculous provision of God. And I've known God moving the hearts of his people To provide for me. So I just want to close by saying if you are in need here, or you know someone in need, then expect God to provide miraculously for you, whether it's through His people or whether it's supernaturally, expect that He will do it because He cares. But if you're in comfort here, and that might well be the majority, then expect God to provide miraculously through you. Be open afresh to God. How do you want to take what I've got? You may have no money. You may have no possessions. You may have nothing you can sell or give to someone else. But you might have time. And don't underestimate how much it can mean to say, I'll give 10 minutes of my week to phoning someone who's isolated and vulnerable and just check in how they are. We all have something to give. God has given us something we can give to bless other people with. He wants us to be distinctive. He wants us to be different to the world around us. He wants us to be set apart. And I'd love to pray for us, if that's okay. I wonder if if you're up for being prayed for, if you'd mind standing. And if you're kind of thinking, do you know what, I am, God, I'm, I'm willing... Even if part of you is thinking, I'm scared to pray this, but you think, actually, God, I do want to be like you. I do want to be a blessing to those around me. I want to provide for others where I can, but I also want to expect your supernatural provision where I can't solve it myself. I wonder if you'd like raise your hands or just do whatever you're comfortable to do. Place a hand on your heart, whatever it is for you that is kind of that posture of responding to God. Father, we are so grateful that you are a God who cares. We're so grateful that you are a God who provides, that you are Jehovah Jireh, that you are the God who sees all we need and you care about the details of our lives. Thank you that you are a generous God. Thank you that you are an abundant God. Thank you you do not withhold your mercies, your compassion, your goodness from us. And God, I pray you would help us to not withhold what we've got, From other people. God, would you give us a mindset like the Macedonians, where we would beg earnestly for an opportunity to give to others who've got less than we've got? God, I pray even this week you'd give us opportunities to be generous to each other and and generous to people we might come across in our day to day lives, whether we know them or whether they're strangers. God, would you take us deeper into the journey of generosity? Would you take us deeper into the journey of expecting supernatural, miraculous provision? God, would you give us open hands and open hearts. And I pray, God, that you would make us distinctive to the communities around, that people might look at us and see how we live, and it might point them to you, Jesus. That we might do a lot of good to people, but it might bring you great glory, Jesus. Amen.